Does everybody have last week's lesson? If you don't have last week's, you need it because we are going to finish up what we didn't finish up last week. I finished it hurriedly because I spent way too much time on Peter's uh, denial, but that's okay. We learned a lot about Peter and his denial of Christ. We saw that, Pe- that Jesus prayed for Peter, and he told Peter, he said, I'm praying for you because the devil wants to sift you as wheat. He said, but I'm praying for you. He said, after you've left me and, and denied me, uh, uh, he said, you're going to be returned to me, and through your returning to me, you're going to encourage many believers. Anybody else need last week's? we got two. Just take them all. I've got three or four, and whoever needs it. So we are on uh, chapter 14, and we are going to look at, uh, we started the sixth I Am. Remember, there are seven I Am's in the book of John. Each of the I Am's is designed to show us that Jesus is God, that He is the deity He claims to be, and that by believing that and knowing that about Him, we can be saved. So, uh, so we see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is what we are. And we're in John 14, and we're going to look probably... Go to verse 14 today. I don't know how far we'll get, but we're going to look at Jesus is the sixth I am. Uh, John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am. And He said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth. And I am the life. And remember we talked about this. The is the is an indefinite is a definite article and it means he is the only way he's not a way but he is the only way there's no other way whereby we must be saved there's no other name but the name of Jesus that we must call upon and be saved so Jesus said I am the way remember what the way uh, what that word was in the greek so Jesus said, I am the hodos. That word in the Greek means, I am the gate. He says, I am the door. He says, I am the... What He says, He says, I am the way. And He talks about this word in the Greek means that the Christian life is a journey. And it gets us from point A to point B. It gets us from here to glory. And Jesus says, I am the gate, the doorway that makes possible this journey. And that word in the Greek talks about this Christ walk in which we are to participate in. As we walk worthy, as we, He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the gate. And there is a picture of a Christ-like walk that we participate in. But we talked about that in good detail. Then we said He is the truth. The word truth, uh, and I'm not going to uh, pronounce it because I don't know how to pronounce it in the Greek. It is uh, alathuo. And we said that word meant... The word means reality. We talked that Jesus is the reality. He's the most important reality. He's the reality that each one of us are accountable to know. He is a reality that changes our hearts and our lives. He is a central figure in history. And if we do not understand Him and who He is and the reality of what He did for us on the cross then we are uh, missing the mark and we are of all men most to be pitied. So he said he's the 
the door, He's the gate, He's the reality, and then He said He's the life, and we said that's the word Zoa, and this is spiritual life, and it is physical life. Not only is He's a creator of all things, He created us, He is the author and the finisher of faith, and He is the giver of all spiritual life. And if we have life today in this room, it is because He has given it to us. And if we trusted Him in faith, it is from Him. And and uh, so what He's saying to them is, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm the. this is the sixth I am of John. And remember why He said that. He said this in this upper room discourse. Remember, this is the night before He's crucified. Remember His disciples... They are going to do what? What do we know from history and from the Scripture? What did the disciples do when Jesus is arrested? They're scattered. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. They're going to strike the shepherd. We talked about this in Zechariah. And the sheep are going to be scattered. So all of the disciples are scattered. All of them are going to abandon Him. And then Peter himself is going to verbally deny that he even knows Jesus three times. And Jesus told him he would do that. But he's telling the disciples this because Judas Iscariot has just betrayed him at the supper. He's told Peter he's going to betray him. And so there is a mood of gloominess. So he says in chapter 14, verse 1, Don't let your hearts be troubled. I know these are anxious times. I know you're not sure what's going to happen. I know you don't understand me being crucified. I don't. Know, I know you don't understand why right now. You don't understand that I'm going to be raised from the dead. But he says, you will know once I am raised from the dead. So he's anticipating their sorrow, their anxieties, and the, and the, and the agitation of their hearts. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Let me read this. John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I not been with you so long, three years, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father's in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say unto you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we see this. Jesus tells them He's the I Am, the way, the truth, and the life. 
He tells them this because he's trying to comfort them. And then he goes on, as we looked at last week, if you're in Lesson 26, (coughs) let's look at uh, why he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Most commentators will tell you that the primary, and I'm saying primary, there's a secondary. Most commentators from MacArthur to John Calvin to Matthew Poole to uh, Matthew Henry, the greats that I read after, they will tell you that the primary focus of this is that he is giving the disciples hope that this present-day circumstance will one day be overcome by victory, and He's telling them that I'm about to be crucified on a cross, I'm going to ascend to heaven, and I'm going to go to my Father, and while I'm there, I'm going to be preparing a place for you. So most commentators think that this is a reference to, Jesus says, I'm going to go in my Father's house or many mansions, I'm going to go prepare a mansion for you, and so where I am, I'm going to come get you, and you're going to be where I am. That's where the primary cause, uh, purpose of this Scripture, according to a lot of very, very wonderful commentators. And I agree that this is a big purpose in what he's just saying. He's told his disciples, don't be discouraged, don't be troubled, there's hope for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you're going to be with me where I am. So that is true. I do not personally believe that this is the primary reason for what Jesus is saying. The reason I don't is because, look what he says. He says, I just read that to you. Now look at verse 19. If Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples and keep their hearts from being troubled... Is there not a better way than to promise something and to buy and buy? If he's promising one day, I'm going to prepare a place for you, you're going to be with where, be with me where I am. This has not been fulfilled in 2,000 years. Is that a great comfort to his disciples who saw him die, saw him raised from the dead, saw him ascend into heaven, and then saw each one of them brutally martyred within 30 years of his... Would that be a comfort to them? It is a comfort to us, the church. We read this and we say, this was spoken 2,000 years ago. It's about to happen. It's a great comfort to us. But is this the primary reason for what Jesus is saying to disciples now? I say no, primarily. I think that that's the secondary reason for us, the church, that we will have hope that one day we're going to be in glory with Him. I think the primary reason for why Jesus is speaking this now is for an immediate uh, comfort. And let's look at it in 419. A little while longer. Now, does a little while longer apply to 2,000 years of counting? 
I'm not very smart, but I don't think that 2,000 years of waiting, which we have been waiting since the church began, would apply to this verse a little while longer. He's talking to the disciples. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. What's he referring to? A little while longer, the world won't see me, but you'll see me. What's he talking about? He's appearing his death his burial, and his resurrection. After his resurrection, do you know there is no record of Jesus appearing to any unbelievers after his resurrection? He appears to the disciples, and then in 1 Corinthians, you see he appears to over 500 people, but he appears to 500 brethren. Remember, he says, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. When he says a little while longer... And the world will see no, see me no more. There's no biblical reference to Jesus being seen by any unbelievers. He appears to believers to increase their trust and their faith in Him. But He says, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So He's saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to appear with before you, and then I'm going to ascend into heaven. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's account of those. He's preaching about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel. And look at his description uh, of, of, of who saw Jesus after the resurrection. For I delivered to you, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. He was seen by Peter, then by the twelve, and after that He was seen by over five hundred brothers at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, some have died. And then He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, He was seen by me, Paul, who was born out of due time. It's referring to when He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus spoke to Him, Why are you kicking against the pricks, Paul? Why are you goading me? Why are you persecuting me? So Paul said, I was the last one to see Him. And there's no record of Jesus appearing to anyone who wasn't of the household of faith, wasn't believers. So when Jesus says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, he's saying, you're going to see me after the resurrection. He told him he's going to appear to him in Galilee, and he appeared to him several times. So this is an immediate comfort. He says, let not your heart be troubled. And then he goes back to say, three days. A little while longer, and you're going to see me, okay? So this is an immediate comfort to them. Because I live, you're going to live also. At that day, you will know that in my, I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What does at that day mean? Trouble in the hearts. He's encouraging them. He tells them He's the way, the truth, and the life. He says, a little while you're not going to see me, and a little while you're going to see me, the world's not going to see me. And then He says, at that time, you will know that I am my Father and the Father's in me. What is He talking about then, there? I think two things. At that time, the resurrection... They're going to see Him raised. They're going to know that He is God because He conquered death. And it also refers to, I believe, Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes, 
and fills the upper room, and all of these promises of the Spirit come and comes, and the Holy Spirit indwells His believers, and there is change wrought in their lives. So they are, they know at that time that Jesus is who He says He is. They look back to the resurrection. So at that day, immediately, Jesus is going to show them and comfort them by His resurrection, His ascension, but by His coming of the Holy Spirit. So I think that this promise is not primarily to 2,000 years later. And I like what one commentator says, this is not reserved for the second advent or when we die. It's for the here and now. So he wants us to be comforted. I am the way and the truth and the life is for, is for immediate now relationship to God. We can have abundant life, eternal life now. God said we can have abundant life now. We don't have to wait for eternity. We don't have to wait for heaven. We don't have to wait for when we die. But we, by God's grace, can now know He's the way, the truth, and the life. We can experience life now. We can experience His reality now. We can experience this journey of which He's the doorway now. So when He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and He talks about mansions, yes, He's talking about a future time, but He's talking to us. He's talking to disciples that He didn't want their hearts troubled because I am the way. The way is not the primary way is not to a place. It's to a person. Okay? And so when He says, I'm the way, I'm the way to be reconciled to the Godhead. I'm the reality of life that you can have now, and I am the avenue through which you attain it. So, do everybody understand that? Primary, most folks say it's talking about heaven I think that's a secondary cause. I think the primary is for people to have comfort now that God walks. He's in us now. The Holy Spirit is in us now. Okay? So I think that's the primary focus of I am the way, the truth, and the life. To comfort the disciples, to comfort us that now we experience life and we experience it abundantly and we can know God. Eternal life is to know God. Everybody understand what I'm saying? And most commentators are going to say it's future. But I'm saying, yes, it is future, but it is applicable to the disciples then and is applicable to us now. I know many Christians that are waiting. That's all they talk about is heaven. But they are not having an abundant life now. They don't have a relationship with God now as He intends them to have. It's not in the great by and by. It's now, Carol. We have great hope for the great by and by, but we have great hope in the here and now, too. And so, Jesus tells His disciples, because if you're telling somebody, don't let your hearts be troubled, and it's something 2,000 years down the road, that's helpful, perhaps. But for my today needs, Jesus says, I'm the way to relationship with the Father. I'm the Godhead. I am the reality. I am life. And so he tells his disciples. Now what he does, uh, what he does is, uh, and then he, if you'll turn now, I think to, uh, uh, I could go over a lot of verses for the hope, future hope. I've got these verses in the Revelation that you guys are all familiar with. And I believe that's the secondary hope of what he's talking about. But I want you to look at this, uh, 
I call it a loving rebuke, and we're in now we're in lesson 27. This loving rebuke that he gives to his disciples, and I'd say this, uh, I think rightly so. Jesus, in a, in, a, in these tender moments before he's going to be crucified on the cross, he empathizes and sympathizes with his disciples. You know, he's told them that they were going to suffer for his sake. He's told them they're going to be scattered and they're going to be martyred for him. He's told Peter that you're going to be hung, uh, you're going to be hung on a cross. And he's already told Peter that and predicted his martyrdom. But look at this, uh, after he's told, uh, the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. We've talked about that. But look at verse five and we see this loving rebuke and we see Thomas First of all, he's one of the disciples. And what, unfortunately, is Thomas the most famous for? Doubting. And we see his record of doubt. If you'll look to John chapter 20, uh, Jesus is going to appear to them. Uh, some of them have seen him. Thomas has not seen him. And Thomas says, unless I touch the, the nail prints in his hands and touch the side where he was pierced with the, with the sword, he said, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus appears. Uh, uh, verse 25, the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. And, and Thomas said, unless I see the hands and put my finger, I'm not going to believe. And eight days later, his disciples were again, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came and said, peace be to you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand in here and put it in my side. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. So Thomas, unfortunately, this is doubting Thomas. And so Thomas, it's not a, so it wouldn't be, uh, strange for knowing what's gonna happen with Thomas. We wouldn't, uh, be really alarmed by his response. And look at his response to Jesus after, uh, he tells him he's gonna be, uh, gonna prepare a place for him. Look at verse 5, uh, chapter 14, John. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Thomas is, is like many of us. Uh, although he's been with Jesus for a long time, these disciples were not yet indwelt by the Spirit. They, they were yet immature in their faith. Although they had seen Jesus work many signs, they still were unable to come to truth about Jesus. That's part of the work of the Spirit in their life. But Thomas doubts and he says, Lord, he says, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way. Now, Thomas should have known this. Just review for me. What has, have they seen from Jesus in the last three years? Jesus told them that I am the bread of life. And he told them what the bread signified. And he told them that the bread has to, this grain of wheat has to die in the ground. And once it dies in the ground, and then it brings forth life. He told them that. And we talked about all these ramifications of all the feast days. He told them that he was the light of the world in the second I am. He told them that He was the door. He told them that He was the good shepherd. He told them that He was the uh, the resurrection and the life. And so, and Jesus demonstrated that He was God by many, Scripture says, infallible proofs. So it's bewildering to us, maybe looking backwards, how is it that Thomas didn't understand this, that who the way was? And so Jesus, in his loving rebuke, says, Thomas, I am the way.
show me the way. He says, I am the way. So he explains to what uh, I think uh, Thomas just just didn't didn't. It's not that he didn't have enough information. It's just that Thomas needed to have faith strengthened. And that is a work of God's Spirit within Thomas. And after we see doubting Thomas in John 20, we see no other record of his doubting. But we assume it's silent in Scripture about Thomas, but we understand from history where he goes and where he ministers to. He becomes an evangelist. And so we see Thomas. We see God's work in him. We see the faith grown in him. And we see no evidence of doubting. But Jesus is patient with him. He says, Thomas... I've been with you three and a half years. I've showed you all these works. I've told you who I am. And so he says, to reiterate, I am the way. You don't know the way. Relationship with the Godhead, with the Father, is only through me. And then he emphasizes again his deity. And then we have the next guy. And who's the next guy? Philip. And this is the Philip who becomes an evangelist. This is a Philip who ministers to the Ethiopian and explains to him the gospel and the Acts. But Philip has two problems, I think. So we see Thomas doubting. We see Jesus explaining this to, to Thomas. And then we see Philip. Lord, show us the Father, verse 8, and it is sufficient for us. And so I think Philip has two problems. Peter, I mean Philip is uh doesn't properly understand the incarnation and Peter Philip doesn't understand this is a wonderful word. Co-inheritance. I've looked at that word and I practice spelling it. Philip doesn't understand properly the incarnation. When he says, show us the Father, this whole book, as we've talked about it for 27 lessons, starts out, in the beginning is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus became flesh, and He tabernacled amongst us. He's told the disciples, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the express image of the Godhead bodily. We've seen this in Colossians many times. Jesus explained to them that He is God. He's told them all these things about Him. Again, for our refreshment, somebody turn to Colossians 1, and then somebody read 15 through 19. Philip just failed to understand that not only is he a man, but he's God. And seeing Him, you're seeing God. God is a spirit. Remember, and Jesus is the exegesis of who God is. He is the complete equal to God. He is, he is in human form so that we may understand God. That's who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're failing to understand I'm fully God and I'm fully man. So who's got Colossians 1, 15 through 19? And then somebody, and then pop over to 2, 9. Just to reinforce the understanding that Jesus is God and that Jesus is God incarnate and Jesus is everything that God is 
in human form and we understand Him. We've looked at this fancy word anthropomorphically. We as men need to comprehend God by what we see in Christ who is God. Who's got Colossians 1, 15 through 19? <coughs> okay. So all the fullness of the Godhead. So Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, I've showed you the Father perfectly in all His attributes, in all of His love, in all of His grace. You have seen the Father. You've seen me. I and the Father are one. So he's telling Philip, I'm God. You're seeing Him. I'm the way to Him. And so who's got Hebrews 1.3, just one more verse to solidify this truth in our hearts that Jesus is God. And you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, for Jesus is the exact representation of who God is, right? So we've talked about this a hundred times in the last 27 messages. This is why this book was written, that you may believe that He is Lord and Christ, and you may have Trust in Him for your salvation. Who's got Hebrews 1 3? Okay? He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature that holds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the exact representation. So, Philip, you say you want to see the Father, you're seeing Him. He's a spirit. You can't see Him with your eyes, but you're seeing Him in me because I represent and I am I am God. So, there's nothing lacking in me that you wouldn't see in the Father if you could see Him. You're seeing me. I'm God. So, it's the exact representation. Then we have this fun word here. Philip didn't understand this. This word means, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means inseparable element. It means, when he's talking about this, he's saying there is a mutual indwelling. So he is saying to Philip, who says, Show us a Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus says, Have I not been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us a Father? Do you not believe? And here's the word, incoherence. Coherence. Here it is, it's defined. 
I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I speak, I don't speak of my own authority, for the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We see this uh, as he goes on to describe this, as he's, as he's teaching and love his disciples. We see this also found in, uh, in, in other verses. Uh, look back to John chapter 10. He starts this teaching early on. Look at 1030. This is the, uh, uh, the co-inherence of the Father, the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he's telling Philip, you know, you're see, you've seen the Father. And then he, look what he says in 1030. I and the Father are one. Look at 1038. They are inseparable elements. They are part and parcel the same. 1038. Look at this, what this says. Uh, 1038 John, but if I, but if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that what? The Father is in me and I am in Him. Look at, uh, we've looked at John, uh, look at John 1420s. We're gonna get into this later. Uh, I've sort of read this already, 1420, at you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And we'll talk about this in a second, a little more detail about this. Uh, look at verse uh, 23, If any John chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We are indwelt by God's Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it's as if Christ and the Father dwell within us. And we'll talk about that in greater detail here in a bit. But we see this. And look at, uh, uh, look at John chapter 17. When He prays for the disciples and He prays for us. This concept. There are, there are three unities that are predominant in the Scriptures. We have the unity of the Trinity. We have the unity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are inseparable elements. Although they are distinct persons, they are one God, and they are inseparable for one another. So that's one thing we understand. And then there is a unity. If you look at at the end of B, there's a unity of the divine and the... In the uh, human nature, when Christ took on real humanity, He is forever now linked. So there's, uh, there is a divinity, He is God, and He is human. So He is the God-man. And when in eternity we will see Him, He is God and He is man, and He will always be unified as God and man. And when we see Him in glory, He will and always uh, will be from the day He was incarnated. He will be divine and human. So that's a unity. And then there's this unity between the believers and the Godhead. And by God's grace, we are united with Christ and reconciled to God by His work on the cross. And the Holy Spirit works in us, regenerates us, creates faith in us. So we are united with Christ, and we are forever united with Christ. And we will never be separated from Him. So we see the three unities that are mentioned throughout Scripture. 
And that is all part of this inseparable element. But God is, Jesus is telling them, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everybody understand what Philip didn't understand. Show us the Father and it's sufficient. And, and how Jesus lovingly taught them the Godhead is inseparable. Does that blow your mind? These are deep truths. These are difficult truths to teach, and they're difficult to, truths to understand. But Scripture is clear of the inseparable elements of the Godhead and the inseparable elements of the three unities mentioned in Scripture. Everybody understand that? Any comments or questions about that? That's right. That's right. So when later, when we get talking about the Holy Spirit in the next month, because there's the most detailed description of the Holy Spirit, of His work in our lives, one of the functions of the Spirit is to bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus said. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the, the disciples, the body of Christ, that the work of the Spirit begins, and then He bring, brings the remembrance and the ability to, to understand and the enlightenment of the eye. So yes, as Melanie said, we can't be hard on it because we'd have been the same way. How can you understand the understandable, ununderstandable, without the Spirit of God to, to direct you? So, everybody understand that? Any comments or questions about that? Now, yes. Yes. It's absolutely. It's absolutely. And when we get to his uh, prayer, I can't. I never am hardly able to read it because it's such a solemn thing to me. Uh, but but uh, when you see Jesus praying for us. In verse 20, chapter 17, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, the church, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. You start to chew on that for a while, that we are one with Christ in this unity and that they are one together and we're one and, and, and He wants us to enjoy His glory and it's unfathomable. But we'll get into that in great detail. But that is Jesus' loving rebuke to Thomas and Philip and encouraging them, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm the way to a personal relationship that you can experience now. Okay? Everybody have that? Now, I want to get to this uh, chapter chapter 4, verse 12. And I, I entitled it, Greater Works. I want you to understand what he means by this and what he doesn't mean. Uh, uh, let's look at verse 12 again, and I just, uh, I think I've labeled it in your notes, just greater works. And uh, we're going to look at 12, we'll talk a little about prayer. I was going to do a whole, a, lot, a, a big study on prayer, and then I thought twice about it, and I'm just going to go verse by verse, and then uh, when it uh, when it gets to the topic of prayer, I'll address it. But verse 12. I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. 
And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so let's look at this about prayer and uh, what this greater work is. Uh, first thing we see about this greater work, uh, it has nothing to do with power. It's not, he's not talking about you're going to have a greater power than I have. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about power, but he's talking about extent. And when I talk about extent, I mean that when the Jesus dies, when he raises from the dead, when he ascends into heaven, and then 50 days from his burial on the cross, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, uh, the extent, the power is going to be more extensive. What I mean by that, Jesus, there's no recording in, of any in Scripture when Jesus is preaching and 3,000 and 5,000 people are saved. We see that many follow Him. We see that they follow Him for superficial reasons because they want to be healed. or, they, or it's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional high for them. And we've talked about Peter's response to the city of Jerusalem. But greater works, He's not talking about there's greater power, but He's talking about that the extent of that power is going to reach out into the whole world. And we see that, uh, that this is spiritual. He's talking about spiritual, not physical. Yes, the disciples are going to have the Holy Spirit's power and they're going to heal people and they're going to raise people from the dead when this church is beginning. Uh, and, and that does happen as recorded in the Acts. But what he's talking about, the greater works in these is going to be you're going to see the church begin. You're going to see thousands of people saved. You're going to be dispersed because of persecution. You're going to go into the whole world, and then this Holy Spirit's extensive power is going to reach out to the whole ends of the earth. So when he says, you're going to do greater works than what I've done, he's not saying there's going to be any different than the power. He's saying, but the extent is going to be different. And instead of a local body of believers in Jerusalem and Judea, it's going to spread into the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's going to be like our missionary friends there. It's going to extend to France, and it's going to extend to Africa, and it's going to extend to China and India and all of the other areas that had not been previously exposed. This power, this this uh, dunamis, this power and authority of Christ is going to spread to the whole earth and it is spiritual. Talking, everybody understand that? We're not going to do greater works than Jesus, but it's going to be more in extent. And we see that. Just look at just uh, any perusal of Acts. Look at Acts real fast. Uh, just the amazing proliferation of the gospel as the Holy Spirit breathes on this new organism, the church. And as the church grows, just see just this amazing, uh, the only explanation is the Holy Spirit. We see, uh, we see Peter, this untrained, untaught fisherman who said in his pride, I'm not gonna doubt, I'm not gonna betray you. We see him now bold instead of being afraid of couple little girls, servant girls, and denies Christ because he's afraid of a couple of women. Now he stands before the whole Jewish nation. He stands before the, the leaders who he knows want to kill him. 
Look at look at this difference that the Holy Spirit makes. Look at two forty. With many words he testified and exhorted them, he's saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And that included all of the perverse people he was talking to, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day three thousand souls were added to the church. That is what it means by greater extent not greater power. And look at, uh, if you're just going to just uh, look on, look at verse 47. The same chapter. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We don't know how many people were included in that, but it's daily. God's Spirit is bringing people, sheep into the sheepfold, and His church is growing. Look at four four. After another sermon... From Peter and John, look at 4.4. Many of those who heard the word believed in the number of the men, doesn't say women, doesn't say children, the men was 5,000. Remember when we did the the breaking of the bread, we said 5,000 men were fed, and we assumed, MacArthur said, that's probably 20,000 people because there's men and children involved. We don't know what the number is, but we know the extent is great. So we see 3,000 added. We see 5,000 added. We see people daily being saved. That is the extent. That's what he's talking about. Greater works you're going to do. So understand that. Second thing, this work only go comes through, and God uses those. Look at verse 12. Those who believe in me. God has chosen to work His work through His people exclusively. Now God could have, in His providence, He could have shared His gospel a myriad of ways. But He's chosen to use us, empty vessels, filled with His Spirit, and He's chosen the matter in which He wants His gospel spread. He told the disciples, I have all authority, and I give you the authority, and you go out and make disciples of all nations. So He has chosen these works to do, but He's done it, and it is limited to the believers. So believers are the ones who carry out these works as the Holy Spirit works in them and through them. So you understand that? He who believes in me, the works. The works are the evidence that we are His and that we believe. We're not saved by the works. As preachers say, as I've said a thousand times in here, the works are the evidence that we believe and that we are His and His Spirit is working through us. Everybody understand that? Now I want to talk about, uh, I think the most important thing in this is this next section, and it's about prayer. Prayer is what? What is prayer? If I were to ask you for a five-word definition of what prayer is. Talking to God, that's three. That's pretty concise, Wayne. He talks to us in His Word. We talk to Him in prayer. The Holy Spirit joins the two, transforms us, changes us through prayer and through His Word as the Spirit gives life to both. So we see this prayer, and we see uh, Jesus talking to this. And 
Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so we notice first then, there's a tie-in between the works and prayer. God has chosen in His providence to use the prayers of His people in conjunction with His purposes being accomplished. And again, if you look to Acts, it is strikingly obvious that all of God's works, He chooses to be effective and and to work through men as men call on His name. He could have done it a different million different ways, but He tells us to be obedient. He tells us to pray. And prayer through faith, as we're according to His Word, He works through the prayers of His people. That's the way He's always done it. And as far as I see, it's the way He's always going to do it. But look at prayer. When He says this, remember, we, to be a good hermeneutical student, to, to properly interpret Scripture, we got to do it in the context. In this context, prayer is tied in to the works. And so He says, He talks about the works and whatever you ask. The same topic about these works and about being to the extent of being useful because you're, you are of me and I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we see this. And look at some of these verses. Uh, look at Acts again. Notice, uh, and if you underline in your Bible, wonderful. If you don't, wonderful. But just, just to give you a taste throughout this book, and I'll do it real quickly uh, because I know uh, people have to eat. One fourteen Acts. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Jesus has told them to wait. And He's told them what to do, why they're waiting. Look at one fourteen. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So we see prayer. They are asking. They are asking in His name, for His will to be done. So prayer is a tie-in, and it is common in the book of Acts. Look at verse 24. When they were going to replace Judas Iscariot, who was the disciple who betrayed Jesus, they had two disciples. They had two people who they were debating against. Look what they did before they accomplished God's purpose. Verse 1, 20, chapter 1, verse 24, And they prayed. You, O Lord, know the names of the hearts of all men. Show which two of these you've chosen. And they chose Mathis to replace Judas Iscariot. So we see prayer vital in accomplishing God's work. Look at 2.42. We were just there. We didn't do verse 42. 2.42 Acts. And they they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Prayer is vital to the accomplishing of God's purposes. So we see prayer. Uh, look at 4.31. It's very, very obvious. They're being told not to preach. They are threatened to be jailed. Look at 4.31. And when they had prayed, 
They were assembled together. Those assembled together, there was a shaking, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. So we see prayer affecting boldness, affecting change in God's providential way. We see that it's all throughout. Even if we go here and look at, you remember when Paul on the road to Damascus, he was converted, but they were afraid of him. And they didn't know how to deal with Paul because he persecuted Christians. And they didn't know how to deal with him. Look at this. Just as prayer works in this. Annas, verse chapter 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 10. There's a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision. So Ananias is praying. And God speaks to him in a vision. And he tells him, you go and you meet with this Saul fella, and I'm, cause I've chosen him to be one of my vessels, and you don't be afraid of him. So prayer, uh, ministers to Ananias, and he in boldness, he goes, and he, he brings Paul and Saul into the fellowship of, of, uh, of believers, and then there is immediate uh, preaching of the gospel. We see that. Look at 10.2. We, preacher read this today about Cornelius. Uh, but Cornelius, this is a tie-in with Peter seeing the vision and the sheets coming down. And, and, and I can share the gospel with not just the Jew, but to the Gentile. Notice what happened before this vision comes to place and before Cornelius meets with Paul 10.2. Cornelius is a devout man who feared God with his household, who gave alms generously and prayed to God always. Always this tie-in relationship. Verse 9, here again, Before Peter sees his vision, the next day as they went their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. So we see this over and over and over and over. 12.5, they're they're in prison. Uh, Look at Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God by him, for him by the church, and we see him released from prison. I could go on and on again, but there is a tie-in with prayer to the, from the believers to accomplish God's purposes. And so if it was true today in the church, then it is true for us today. Now, as I close, you have to get this. Prayer from believers... It presupposes relationship. Once you are reconciled to God, to the Father by Jesus Christ, through the work of the Spirit, you then are a partaker of these mercies. You then have the ability and the right, the right to, and the, and the, uh, grace gift to pray. So when it says limited to believers, it presupposes relationship with God. You remember when the when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray? Uh, look over in Matthew six. It's fascinating how he describes it before he actually does the model prayer. But the disciples they see Jesus praying all the time.
6.5, Matthew. When you pray, he's talking about to the disciples, and he's talking about the church. When you the disciples, when you the church, when you in this room, when you pray, that supposes, presupposes that you have a relationship with God. Verse 6, but when you pray... Then it says, go into your room when you shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father. And then he says in verse 9, our Father. So this prayer and the ability to pray, the desire to pray, and the effectiveness of prayer presupposes relationship with God. Because scriptures tell us that and and you can see this in uh in uh Proverbs 15 I've got that in D1 Proverbs 15:8 and 9 and 21:7 and 28:9 it basically says that prayer of the wicked is a what abomination if you are lost and you do not have a relationship with Christ, access to the Father, through the Godhead, you do not have the expectation or the right to pray for this to go on. You, Scripture says, you fall on your face and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's what He tells you to do. If you're not in relation with Christ, you fall on your face and you ask for mercies and grace. And then, if He saves you, then you have the right, right? It presupposes relationship. And so this prayer is to the believers, to the church, and it presupposes. It also presupposes, and this is something that is probably not thought of very often, it implies, it presupposes uh, not only relationship, but how do I have it worded? It implies a current right walk. Scripture tells us, if you don't uh, know this verse, you should memorize it. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. That word regard means if I wink at if I cover up, if I hold on to, if I've got a sin that I just think I've got the right to have and it's nobody's business but my Lord and it's between me and nobody else knows, if I regard that iniquity, if I refuse to repent of it, then you need to understand that that is breaking the familiar relationship with you and the Father and that that is keeping your prayers from being answered. If you have a wrong relationship with your wife, Scripture says in 1 Peter 3, 7, your prayers are going to be hindered. So relationship presupposed, but current confessed relationship is also 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess sin, He is faithful and just to forgive sin. So we need to be in right relationship with Him. We need to be currently fessed up, if you will, and be in a current right relationship with Him. We need to abandon sin, die to sin, and we can't be living a life. Sin shouldn't be a characteristic of our life. Because if it is, 
we're quenching the Spirit and He's not hearing our prayers, okay? Thirdly, thirdly, and I think this is uh, uh, the most important, well, it's not the most important, but it's very important. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Son, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There are many people who teach wrongly a name it, claim it prayer life. And I can ask for anything. And this word says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. They take that verse out of context and they say, I want a Mercedes-Benz. I want a jet airplane. I want this. I want that. And they're asking, and they take that verse, and he says, all I got to do is ask, and it's going to happen. But they are missing the boat. This in context. We need to understand. Asking, point three, if you don't know anything else about today, asking in Jesus' name is synonymous with asking according to His will. When we are in union with Christ, when we're walking obediently according to His Word, when we're desiring and trust for His glory to be accomplished, the Holy Spirit directs our prayers. As Terry says, not only does the Holy Spirit direct our prayers, the Holy Spirit corrects our prayers. And that would be, that would be in Romans 8.26. Yes, sir. Right. Prayer is not uh, is not is not. Uh, I always say you can you can ask for anything you want as long as it's okay to want it. And Scripture tells us in, in James four four, you pray, you don't get your prayers answered because you ask amiss with the wrong motivation, and your motivation is because you're a covetous and idolatrous person. So your motivations are wrong. It's me, 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 me. I want, I want, I want. Instead, it should be, Thy will be done. It's for Thy glory. It's okay to ask for healing. We do that every week in here. And we understand that it may be God's will to heal. And it may be more for God's glory for that sickness to lead to death or lead to greater sorrow because His purposes are more important than ours and He's working this out, right? And so we got to trust Him. So when it says you ask, whatever you ask for, I'm going to give it, that doesn't give you a blank check. That presupposes that you're walking according to His Word. And as you're, as the Spirit is indwelling you and as you are obedient and as you are Praying, the purpose of this section is that your prayers are going to give glory to God and that your prayers are going to be a part of His work in His body. Okay? That's what this context is. And then I say, prayers offered selfishly with wrong motivations and without faith are not in Christ's will, nor are they in His name, and those prayers will not be pleasing to Him. So this isn't a blank check to pray however you want. For whatever you want, no matter how you live, it is limited to believers. It presumes a relationship. It, can, it, it implies a current right walk. 
and it implies that you're praying in His will for His glory. And uh, that's what this section, this verse on prayer is talking about. Within the context of works, greater works, within the scope of His message to His disciples. And when we get into these other verses in John 16 and 15 about prayer, it's going to open up a bit. It's going to broaden the scope a bit. And we're going to talk about how to ask, how to knock, how to seek. We're going to get into all that. But this verse at this time, in this context, is this is what it's talking about. And if you know Rachel like I know Rachel, you've seen an evolution in her trust and His work in her life. Because 30 years ago, you wouldn't have said that. Right? Yes. And that's the progress, right? That's the sanctification, right? It is. We learn this about Him. That all things are working for His good, but part of His good may be suffering, may be struggle, will be struggle, and we're going to talk about this as we get into this, but uh, everybody understand this concept of prayer and greater works? Comments, questions, and I'm done. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Tell me how you deal with yeah, it. I don't, no good denying it. First thing is to listen to them and acknowledge what they're saying is true. Yep. And, and then try to guide them into uh, you know, what does the scripture actually say? That's what does the scripture say? Yeah. What does the scripture say? That's the reality of our attempt to witness in this culture. Absolutely. Good. I thank you very much, God, for the little scripture says if you pray anything according to your will. He will hear you, and if He hears you, then you know that He will give you the thing that He requests. Yep. But according to His will is the key to that. That's a that's a a heck of a long answer that I'm not going to be able to give you the answer to, but uh, uh, you learn what God's will is by learning His Word, and as you read His Word, you learn what His will is for you, and so you can plainly see His will is your sanctification, for example. His will is that you abstain from sexual immorality. His will is, and you look at the imperatives that you behave like a Christian and love one another. So as you are obedient to His will, 
you become aware of what He desires you to pray for. And your prayers become less self-absorbed and less and less selfish. And it's a process, Wayne. And sometimes we don't know what to pray for, and that's why Romans says the Holy Spirit utters groanings which cannot be heard. Because we've all got prayers. I know you guys have been praying for people in your family for years. And it may be... And it is good that you pray that way, but the answer to that prayer hasn't come to y'all yet, right? I mean, we know some of the things y'all pray for, because Gina Diane tells us, and you know what we pray for. I know you've been told that. So, uh, But we are praying and we're trusting for His will to be done. But can we know what all His will is? Because He's got a secretive will and He's got His declared will. And we don't know what His secretive will is. But we pray in faith and we pray according to His Word and, and we trust Him. That's not maybe the answer that you want to hear. But, it's, but uh, all of those presuppose not being selfish. Because if you're being selfish and you're not praying with a with a right relationship with Him, you can't possibly be praying in His will. How do you pray against it? Well, you can't pray against it. You can pray, and then His will is. You can pray for something that He don't want to happen, and guess what? What He don't want to happen is not going to happen. <laughs> no, no. Persistence in prayer. I, I, Andrew Murray said, if, if you give up praying and you quit praying, then you are okay with the answer you're not getting. So you consist, and we'll make it into that. Keep on praying. That knocking, asking, and seeing is is the is in the present tense. That means keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. That's right. See, he we think you know I got to pray for six months and I'm done, and people quit. I've been praying for people for twenty three years. And I know some of you have been praying for people for 50 years and 75 years. Well, maybe 75 years. Keep on, keep on, keep on, right? I've had enough. Anybody want to close us in prayer? How would our missionaries like to close us in prayer? We appreciate you guys being here, and we thank you for your uh, faithfulness.